Amen. The writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to a group of people in the early days of New Testament times that were under the temptation of turning away from Jesus Christ. And whenever someone is turning away from Jesus Christ, be it the people that this writer was addressing in his day, or whether it be anyone else at any period of time, they're always turning from Jesus unto something else. No one just turns away unto nothing, but there's always a something else that they're turning unto. Now, this group of people, in that the name of the book is called Hebrews, This was a group of Hebrew or Jewish people that had come to a faith in Jesus Christ. They were, as you would call them, completed Jews. They were brought up as the seed of Abraham, but yet they embraced Jesus as their Messiah, and thus they were experiencing the fulfillment of everything that their ancestors had laid the foundation for. They were completed Jews. But they were facing pressure and temptation to leave that profession of faith in Christ and to turn back to the Judaic system of the laws and rituals that were given to them and passed down to them through Moses. And so the author of Hebrews is now writing this letter and what he is doing is basically taking the the position of an attorney or of a lawyer And he is seeking by his letter to prove to this group of of, of Hebrew Christians that they are making a very foolish mistake in turning away from Jesus and turning back into this old system. And the book essentially breaks down into three sections. Uh, The first section would be the opening arguments, just as the attorney would come into the courtroom and the very first thing that he would do is he would present his case. And so the first 10 chapters, the section that we'll finish up tonight, Lord willing, is that whole point of his opening arguments. And it's a very lengthy portion of the book. It takes up most of of the writing of Hebrews, this opening argument that he brings. And essentially, in this opening argument, what he gives to us is he gives us 10 elements of the Old Testament system or the Mosaic system And then he holds those 10 things side by side next to Jesus Christ. And he shows that Jesus is not only superior to those things, but that he is the very fulfillment of what those things were foreshadowing or pointing to. And thus his, his, his objective is to show that to leave Jesus the greater for the lesser doesn't make sense. That you're taking a step in the wrong direction. Those are his opening arguments throughout the first 10 chapters. Then the second section of Hebrews, the section that we'll begin looking at next week, is chapter 11. It's just one chapter. And that's when this attorney calls his witnesses to the stand. It's a very famous passage of scripture. It's called the Hall of Faith as he just goes through and he takes characters out of history, biblical history, and he gives forth their testimony of how they trusted not in the Mosaic system, but in salvation provided divinely by God, which is what we have in Christ Jesus. And so that's the witnesses. That's the second part of this uh, letter. And then the third part is his closing arguments. And basically the closing arguments that he brings to to his audience is, is that he answers the question, well, okay, if Jesus is superior and we believe that he's superior, 
then why is it so hard to be a follower of Christ in the world that we live in? That's a very real question, and that's a very real uh, sentiment, a thing that we feel. It's not easy to be a Christian. I remember one of the um, first messages that I heard as a new believer it was given by a, a, a music artist. His name was Michael Peace. And, he, and he, he just sat with a group of us. We were brand new in the faith. And he said, you know how I know uh, that Christianity is real? He said, because it's hard. He goes, if this was made by man, we'd make it a lot easier <laughs> than it is. And, and, and there is a difficulty to walk uh, this narrow road in this world because we're, we're, we're walking against the current of everything else that the world is doing. And so he answers the question in chapters 12 and 13 is just why this is so difficult. Now, anytime a person turns from Christ, whether it was them then or whether it's a person in our world today, Part of the reason why that person turns is because of the difficulty, because of the pressure, because there, there is uh, uh, um, something that's pulling me uh, away in some regard. And so it's a pertinent argument that he gives. But the main message, when it's all said and done, and you encapsulate the entire book of Hebrews into just one sentence, the message that the writer of Hebrews is bringing to his audience is this, don't turn away from Christ. You could just sum, sum up the entire book in just that one sentence right there. Don't turn away from Christ. Now, for someone in our day reading the book of Hebrews, the argument as to why we shouldn't turn away from Christ might be different than what was given to the Hebrews. I don't know if there's any um, Jewish Christians here tonight that are facing the same type of pressure that these Christians were. Probably not many of us. But the message of Hebrews abides still the same for each one of us. And that is, don't turn away from Christ. Don't let something pull you away from him and draw you away to something that will lead to nothing but death. And so tonight, as we look at chapter 10, we look at the final point or the final portion of this opening argument of the author of Hebrews. And what he's going to bring to us tonight as we just close out this section is how the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made upon the cross is a superior sacrifice than the sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament. And so uh, he's done that on every level, all ten things. This, angels, prophets, Moses, Joshua, the promised land, the priesthood, Aaron and his sons, the sanctuary, the old covenant, all these old things, Jesus is superior. And now he does that concerning the sacrifices of the old uh, versus the sacrifices of the new. So if you would, you're in Hebrews chapter 10, but with your eyes, if you would just back up a few verses to chapter 9, verse 23, and I'm going to read from there to bring the context up to speed with chapter 10, verse 1, as we move forward. It says there, it says, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. That is, the earthly tabernacle and the earthly articles of worship from the Old Testament were purified with the blood of animals. And it was necessary that that be so, because every covenant must be sealed by blood. That's what he left off by saying. But then he says in verse 24, he says, but, or the end of verse 23, he says, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, that is the earthly, which are the figures 
or the paradigms of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus being the superior sacrifice that can take away sin once and for all. And it says that it is a man appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So the context of what he's talking about now is the sacrificial system that was enacted by God through Moses in order to cover the people's sins. In the Old Covenant, that's the way that it would work. If you sinned, you would bring an offering, a lamb, a goat, a ram, a dove, a bull, depending on what your offering or your sin or what your sacrifice required at that given time, you would bring it. The priest would then offer it and the blood of that animal would be shed on your behalf and your guilt and the penalty for your sin would be transferred upon that animal, that sacrifice, and then you would be covered, but that covering would only last for a while. It would only last until you sinned again. And then you would have to have another sacrifice under the old covenant. But what he's saying is that the sacrifice of Christ was not a once-until-you-sin-again sacrifice, but it's a once-and-taking-care-of-forever sacrifice. That those that have the blood of Christ as their plea before the throne of God, they are forgiven of all sin once and forever. And thus it's a superior sacrifice. Now he explains as we get into chapter 10, verse 1. And he begins with, in these first 10 verses here, by talking about the inferiority of the Old Testament sacrifices. Why is it that the Old Testament sacrificial system wasn't good enough? That's the question he answers in verses 1 through 10. He says, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. So he sets forth his premise, right, straightforward in verse 1, by saying that those offerings could not perfect the worshipers as they would come and serve year by year. And he begins the argument by saying that the law... And those sacrifices that were contained in the law were very simply the shadow of the good things to come, but not the substance themselves. Now, a shadow can cast an image or a form. It can give an outline. It can help you to identify what something is. But if you think about, just for a moment, the difference between a shadow and the actual substance that makes the shadow, it's a world of difference and detail, isn't it? I mean, a shadow doesn't have three dimensions. You can't describe its shape, its features, its color. None of that can be determined by the shadow itself, just a form or an outline. And what he's saying is that those sacrifices in the Old Testament, all they served was as a shadow, an outline, 
something that would give direction or indication concerning something that was of greater substance that would be yet coming later on in the future. It was just a shadow. Now, what was the shadow that the law cast? If I could describe the silhouette of that shadow to you, what would it be? It would be this. It would be that those sacrifices can never take away your sin. It's knowledge without the ability to do. That was the shadow that the law cast. It gave to us the knowledge of what was right and good, but it could do nothing to change what we were on the inside or to remove the guilt and stain of sin that existed within us. It was a shadow, but it wasn't the substance. It wasn't the real thing. And so he sets forth the premise. Now he's going to give proof that those Old Testament sacrifices were insufficient, and he's going to base his proof upon four things. He's a really good lawyer. He argues well. He covers his territory. He begins in verse 2 with the logical proof that those sacrifices were inferior. He says, verse 2, For then, if those sacrifices were good enough, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. Now that's great logic, isn't it? He says, very simply, if it was sufficient, the Old Testament sacrificial system, to take away your sins and the guilt of those sins, then why would you have to keep coming back and offering more and more sacrifices? The fact that you had to return meant that the sacrifice wasn't sufficient. It wasn't enough. So it's illogical to think that you can make enough sacrifices then to cover every sin. I mean, how many sins do we commit in the course of a day? I mean, just think about it for a minute. You say, well, maybe like one or two, you know, wait. (laughs) The Bible says that the things that we think translate into our actions. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So if in my heart I'm angry, Jesus said that's equivalent to murder. If I lust in my heart, Jesus said that that's equivalent to adultery. And so if sin can be committed in thoughts and it doesn't even require my actions, then how sinful does that make me? And if I had to bring an offering for every one of those sins to account for them, when will it ever be enough? It's illogical to think that I could offer enough sacrifices to God to take away my sin. He moves from his logical argument to the internal evidence in verse 3. He says, but in those sacrifices of the Old Testament, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. In verse 2 at the end, he talked about the conscience. He mentioned the conscience also in chapter 9. How many of us know what it feels like to have a guilty conscience? I know that I do. And what he's saying is to these Hebrew believers, he's saying very logically, he's saying, listen, monitor the signals of your own conscience. Think about what you feel like on a day-to-day basis. Do you feel as though your sins are forgiven when you bring the offering of a bull or of a lamb? Does that really satisfy internally, spiritually? Is there a rest internally that is created by your offering of those sacrifices and thinking that it's sufficient before a holy God to take away your sin? And he's saying, listen, I'm a Hebrew, was one. You are a Hebrew, were one. You know as well as I do that the Day of Atonement comes and goes, but we feel exactly the same. It doesn't touch the conscience. There's an internal voice that says, we've done the deed but we haven't removed the stain. It's still there. He moves from the internal proof then to, in verse 4, the legal proof. He says this very plainly. 
He says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. That's actually a legal fact in the economy of God. It is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sin of a human being. The law requires sacrifice of like kind, meaning that if a a person is going to have his or her sins covered, then the offering must be a human innocent sacrifice. Bulls and goats don't equivocate to man. It's not an equal sacrifice. The life isn't the same. The form isn't the same. An animal is not body, soul, and spirit like as we are. They're an entity that's lower than we are. They're on an earthly plane. And it had to be. That's why Jesus was the Son of Man as well as the Son of God. He had to be fully man in order for his sacrifice to count to take away sin on our behalf. And so it's not even legal that our sins could be completely put away by the offering of a lamb or of a bull or of a goat. So legally, it's not possible. And then the fourth stage of his argument takes place between verses 5 and 10, and that is the scriptural argument. And that's probably the most important of them all. If we're going to make claims concerning truths of God, we must be able to back them up with scripture, right? So he reaches back into the Psalms, Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, and he pulls scripture out of the Old Testament to prove that the Old Testament sacrifice system cannot take away sins. He says, wherefore, or this is why, when he comes into the world, he says, now quoting from Psalm 40, sacrifice and offering you wouldest not. In other words, the Holy Spirit declares to us that it isn't sacrifices and offerings that God is interested in, but rather, he says, a body you have prepared me. Speaking of the incarnation of Christ, God coming into the world in human flesh. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have had no pleasure. Then said I, still quoting from the psalm, Lo, I come, that is, God came. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Now that's an incredible statement concerning Christ, isn't it? This is spoken from the first person as though it was spoken by Christ himself, though it was quoted in the Psalms or quoted from the Psalms. He says, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. That's one of the most magnificent truths that you and I possess as Christians as it relates to our Bible and our esteem and relationship with the Bible. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's amazing to think about, isn't it? That his word is his nature. It's who he is. Jesus would say to the Pharisees in one of his encounters with them recorded in the Gospel of John, he said to them, you guys search the scriptures and in them you think that you have eternal life. But he says, assuredly, I say to you that these are they which testify of me. Now, at that time, they didn't have a New Testament. It wasn't put together yet. Many of the things that are contained in the New Testament weren't even written in the day that Jesus spoke that. So what scriptures was Jesus speaking of? He was talking about the Old Testament scriptures. 
And it's a radical claim. He's saying that all of those verses were there to speak of me. By the Spirit in the psalm quoted here, he says, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. Did you know that you can find Jesus Christ on every page of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? He's there. There is something to be known of his person. When you study Genesis chapter 5, and you could go way further back into Genesis. You could go back to Genesis 1 when it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And God said, Let there be light. There's Jesus right there. He's the light of the world. You could look at the creation story when it says that on the fourth day, God separated the light from the darkness. And you see Jesus who came into the world and he says, I am come a light into the world, but men love darkness. He's the one that separates the light from the darkness. And you get every little thing that's written there speaks of Jesus in some way. You come to Genesis chapter 5 and you read a genealogy. It gives you a genealogy that goes from Adam to Noah. And you say, okay, you show me Jesus in the genealogy that goes from Adam to Noah. Well, Jesus is there. Do you know if you take the names that are given in that genealogy, Adam, Seth, Enosh, you know, and then he goes on down through Methuselah, Mehujael, Enoch, and he gets down to Lamech and uh, Mehalalel, and then Noah, you know, he, gets, he goes all the way down through. If you take those names in order and just write out the, the Hebrew definition of what those names mean, do you know what it says if you put those names together? It says, man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring eternal rest. That's what those names mean if you just put the definitions of them in. It's the gospel. Jesus Christ is on every page of the Bible. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. And why is he coming? He says, in order to do thy will, O God. And what did Jesus come to do? He said, I do always only those things which please the Father. That was his intent. That's why he came. Now, the writer of Hebrews begins to comment on those verses from the psalm in verse 8. He says, above, when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin you would not, neither had pleasure therein, these are offered by the law. He's saying, you want scriptural proof that the Old Testament sacrifices were insufficient? Well, how about that God said that they were insufficient? He said that he had no pleasure in them at all. How could God say that he had no pleasure in sacrifices if that's what God said would be the pleasure to him? It stands to reason that they were insufficient. They're offered by the law. Then he said, verse 9, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He takes away the first, that is the Old Testament sacrifices, so that he may establish the second. That is, when he says, then he said, Lo, I come to do your will. It's a future coming of a greater sacrifice. That when the psalmist said, lo, I come, or I am coming, it means that there's a secondary fulfillment of what the primary offering represented. The primary being the shadow, Christ being the fulfillment. He says, by the which will, meaning 
When Jesus said, I come to do your will, what was that will? What was the will of God? He says, by that will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What was the will of God in coming into the world as the sin sacrifice in the person of his son? Is that you and I might be completely forgiven of our sins, past, present, and future. That the sum total of our iniquity would be put away, washed in the blood, laid at the foot of the cross, cast as far as the east is from the west, so that God remembers it no more. And when he looks at you and me, he sees the perfection of Jesus Christ. To be sanctified means to be made holy. It means that God has ceremonially washed us and made us clean and presentable before him. It also means that he has set us apart unto himself. So he's made us clean and he's drawn us near. That's what it means to be sanctified. That was the will of God in sending his son into the world. The forgiveness of our sins and the establishing of a relationship between us and him that is personal, that is lasting, and that is real. That's what God wants. That was his will in doing it. And so he gives forth the proof that the Old Testament sacrifices were insufficient. He gives logical proof. He gives internal proof. He gives legal proof, and then he gives scriptural proof that the Old Testament sacrifice won't Cut it. You cannot be made right with God based upon the Mosaic system. Then in verses 11 through 18, now he's going to give the other side. Why is the sacrifice of Christ good enough? Why is that sufficient? What's better about it? He says, and every priest, that is the Old Testament priest, stands, and I want you to circle that word stands right there if you have a pen, close by, because it's a very important word in the context of things. He says that every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The priest is constantly moving around within his work between the brazen altar and bringing and presenting the blood and moving around in the tabernacle and later on in the temple, just constantly moving, constantly offering the same sacrifices over and over and over again because those sacrifices can't put away sin, no, no matter what. I mean, I just wanted to think about for a minute how sinful we are. We are sin-laden, right? Right to the core. I like the illustration of a sponge, a clean sponge that is saturated in black ink. I mean, you can take that sponge and you could put it in clean water a thousand times, but every time you wring out that sponge, there's going to be a cloud in that water because it is saturated with the darkness of that black ink. Same thing is true within our lives. There was a time, um, you know, I think it was a couple of years ago now that I was standing back in the sound booth during a Sunday service and I had my hand, my left hand in my pocket and I was playing with what I thought was a gum wrapper that was there. You know how they just kind of get bunched up? Sometimes they go through the wash and they just become like this little, like, you know, thing. And I, and I was just, like, just, just kneading this, um, this gum wrapper back and forth in my hand. And then all of a sudden, it felt a little wet. And I thought, that's weird. And this horror gripped me because I kind of had this intuition. I knew what it was and I was right. 
pulled it out. It was a stink bug that had <laughs> crawled in, like, at some point <laughs> while those pants were hanging in the closet, you know, seeking refuge, you know? And I went, oh, no. And, and you know, some people say, well, I can't smell those. You know, you just haven't smelled it yet. You know, once you get that, you know exactly what it is. You could pull it from wherever. But here's the thing about the stink bug. You can't get that off. I mean, you are just, there is going to be a span of time that you are going to be confronted with that smell if it gets on you. It's not the worst smell in the whole world. I've smelled worse things than the stink bug, but you can't get it off. And that's kind of the idea is that those Old Testament sacrifices, they could not take away the sin. They could cover it. They, they could do something for that season of which God was dealing with the world in that way. But they could not take away the sin. Wash it a thousand times. Still there. Yep. I knew it. I knew it was still going to be there. But notice the contrast in verse 12. He said, but this man, speaking of Christ... It says, after he had offered one sacrifice, not thousands, not daily, but one, for sins, plural, forever, eternal, it says that he sat down, and that's the other word that you can circle, on the right hand of God. Do you see that the other priests, they could never sit down. In fact, there was no chair or bench or seat anywhere in the tabernacle or later in the temple compound. There was no place for the priest to sit because his work was never done. But when Jesus entered into the holy sanctuary in heaven, the first thing that he did is that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When Jesus uttered the words from the cross that it is finished, and the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, and he gave up the ghost, the entire price for the sin debt of humanity was paid in full at that point. There is no longer any sacrifice or offering that is to be made ever again because that is the one sacrifice that God accepts forever. He sat down at the right hand of, uh, of God. From henceforth, expecting or waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that, that is, even after saying, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. He says, after that, he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. Quoting from Jeremiah 31. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. That's the words that, that the, the writer of Hebrews wants us to see right here. That he will remember them no more. That once our sins are put away in Jesus Christ, God remembers them no more. Now that's a remarkable thing, isn't it? Think about that for just a minute. Because the Bible tells us that God is omniscient. It's a big word that means all-knowing, meaning that God knows everything. There's nothing that God doesn't know. So that means when I sin, or if I have sinned, it's impossible for God not to know about it, because he knows everything, right? But for God to say, I will not remember it, means that he sets a restriction in his own mind that he will not allow that part of what he knows to come into his awareness. I will remember them no more. I've blocked that part out of my memory. It is as though it never happened. And thus, verse 18, 
the conclusion of his uh, proof concerning the superiority of this sacrifice, he says, now where remission or forgiveness of these is, there is no longer an offering for sin. Meaning that if you are in Christ Jesus, if you are sanctified, meaning that you have come to God by faith, and you have acknowledged before him that you personally are a sinner and in need of salvation, and you have asked God to apply the sacrifice of Christ and his blood to your account because of your sin, professing to him that you believe in him and what he did and that Jesus rose from the the dead, God says that in that profession, you will be saved. That God says, yes, to every person that comes and asks for forgiveness through Christ. And once you do that, God takes the entire registry of your sins and he places them on Christ. And he takes the entire innocence of Christ and he applies it to you. He trades the just, Jesus, for the unjust. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what the Bible says. And thus, when we put our faith in Christ, our sins are completely blotted out and there is no longer any offering for that sin. Meaning, you can't bring an offering to God anymore. What are you going to do? What are you going to add to what Jesus did for you? Well, Lord, I, I sinned extra today, so I know Christ, but I'm bringing this goat. What? That's like God paints the Mona Lisa for you, and you say, God, I know you painted the Mona Lisa, but I drew some stick figures, and I'd like to add them to the Mona Lisa. Or maybe put a mustache on her or something, you know. No, you can't add to what God has done. There's no longer an offering. The offering is over. So what does that mean for you and me? How does this apply? If you and I, or these Hebrew Christians in the first century, if we're in Christ and our sins have been put away, then what does that mean to us now? And this part applies to all. He says in verse 19, Having therefore, brethren, this is what we have, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Do you realize what he just said there? And I want you to hear it through the ears of a Jew. Boldness to enter into the holy of holies. So you're there. And it's the day of atonement and the whole nation is gathered outside the tabernacle. And the high priest has been sanctified through his many purifications. He has the blood in hand and the hyssop and the wool and all the things that he needs to go in and be holy. The rope has been tied around his leg in case he drops dead in there. They can pull him out without having to go in. All things have been made ready for this one monumentous occasion. It happens once a year when the high priest is going in. And all of a sudden, here you come, a goyim, a Gentile, from the outside. And you're whistling, just walking, not paying attention to anyone else that's around you. Your head's in the air. You're looking up, enjoying the fresh breeze of that time of year. (whistles) Nothing in your hands. You're wearing your street clothes. You got dirt. You got a stink bug in your pocket. (laughs) You're walking through, and and you push your way past all the people that are standing outside. You just walk right into the tabernacle, right into the first sanctuary. And priests start looking. Who does this? person and the high priest that someone goes this you know security comes and the high priest goes, no no watch this they're gonna drop dead watch 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 they're gonna be struck by lightning and you 
you go over, you see the showbread, you, you know, hey, that's good, nice, good recipe. Go right in, go. You're like, man, that person's bold. And then they see the veil, this 50-pound curtain, 18 inches thick. What's in here? You push it back, and you go inside. Hey, God, it's good to be here today in your presence. Well, who do you think you are? Walking boldly into the Holy of Holies, thinking that you have an audience with God and that you can be accepted by Him. Do you realize the privilege and the, print, the, 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 the price that's been laid to our account that we have in Christ? Having boldness to enter into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus. I'm forgiven. I'm saved. The cross is my plea. The cross is my righteousness. The cross is my hope. And thus I can go into the presence of God boldly anytime I want. I don't have to say the right words in order for him to let me in. I don't have to prove my sincerity with a clean life for an hour or days before I approach. I can come boldly into his presence anytime I want because I've been sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. What a priceless gift. He says, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And not only having boldness to enter in, but verse 21 also, having a high priest over the house of God. Who is our high priest? None other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said in John chapter 15, he said, I no longer call you servants, but I've called you friends. For a servant doesn't know his Lord's business or what his Lord is doing, but I have made all things known unto you. And we have an advocate with him wherein now that he is our friend. And therefore, he says in verse 22, in light of the things that we have, he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We have been invited into the presence of God to to draw near to him. That when we pray, we can pray to him with boldness and with confidence and with simplicity and with sincerity. Notice the way that he says that we're to draw near. He says, draw near with a true heart. Do you know what a true heart is? A true heart is an honest heart. It's not a clean heart. It is clean, but it's not clean because it's clean. It's clean because he's made it clean through the blood of Christ. So an honest heart. You know what this means? It means I can come sincerely. It means that when I've just sinned, it means that when I have not approached God for a full week, or for a full month because of either my schedule or because I'm just plain lazy or because I didn't want to and now my conscience is bothering me and I feel like I need to get close to God. But the internal voice says, no, you can't just get close to God. You think that you've been away for a month and and now you can just come close to God again? You can't do that. You go to church a couple times. Start reading your Bible for a little bit. Change a couple things. Then come to God. No, 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 no. That's not a true heart. A true heart is God. I haven't spoken to you in a month. But this is where I'm at. And I come not by my own righteousness, but I come by the blood of Christ. And if God, you'll have me, here I am. And God always says, I'll have you. A true heart, a simple heart, a sincere heart. He says, a true heart in full assurance of faith, believing that God receives you, not because you deserve it, but because he's paid for it in the person of his son. That's assurance. Why? Because our hearts are sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies are washed 
with pure water. He has purified me through the blood of his son. He has made me ceremonial clean with the water of his word. So therefore, he says, verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. Don't doubt. What did Jesus say? He said, believe and don't be of a doubtful mind. In Luke, he said, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. And thus we don't need to waver. It's like, well, am I welcomed? Can I pray? Will he hear me? Can I believe that he's going to answer if I call? Is, is, am I in good favor with God today or have I fallen out of favor? No, 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 that's wavering. Don't waver. He's saying draw near in true assurance without wavering, knowing that he is faithful that promised. The glory of this new covenant is that it's not based upon our faithfulness, it's based upon his faithfulness. And furthermore, he says in verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. In other words, realize that the standing that you hold before God has an effect on the lives of other people as well. If you have a boldness to enter into the presence of God, that's going to encourage others to have boldness to enter into the presence of God as well. If your life is a reflection of the work of God within you, that's going to encourage others to allow God to, to reflect himself through them and their works as well. I remember a time not, not too long ago that I was walking with a brother in the Lord and uh, we were just talking as we were walking and, and I can't remember the issue, but something came up and I, I said to him, I said, why don't we just pray about that? Let's bring that before the Lord right now and just ask him to, 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 to address that. And he said, all right, let's do it. And so we walked and we just began to pray. And I just prayed like I always do. I just began to talk to God about the thing that, that we had been discussing and you know, not super long time. I wasn't praying in King James words, you know, just speaking to God. And when I was finished, I said, amen. And, and, you know, we just walked for a while. And then later on, he came to me and he said, you know, when you prayed, he goes, I was so moved by, by, by your prayer. He says, not because of what you prayed, but he said, because of the way you talk to God. He said, you talk to him just like you were his friend, as though he was right there, just kind of walking right alongside with us. I hadn't thought anything of it at all. And he said, you know, that really helped me just just that perspective on things and the way that we talk to God. Listen, what the writer is saying here is that if you have a sincere and true walk with God, that's going to spill over and have an effect in the lives of other people as well. So let us consider that our boldness to be in his presence, our drawing near to him and our call to be close to him, and our faith and assurance that he's with me in spite of what I know I am on the inside that that's going to have an effect and it's going to be contagious in the lives of other people as well. Consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. And then verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. It's the manner of some to say, well, I don't need church. I don't need, I mean, we don't have to go to church, right? No, you don't have to go to church. You can be saved and not go to church. You heard it from a pastor. You can even get the tape and take it away. But you know what? It's a foolish way to live your Christian life. Because we come in here to be fed and to be edified and to grow so that we can be strengthened to go out into the world and live for Him. And God has a purpose in the gathering of us together. There's an element of His presence that's here. 
there's an element of his binding together of the body and the mutual edification and strengthening of one another that happens in the dynamic of the body of Christ that cannot happen just while you're out maybe listening to a message in your car on a C, in a CD or listening to it on the radio and saying, well, I don't need to go to church. I'm too busy to go to church. No, it's important to be a part of a local church body, a fellowship of believers. He says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but rather exhorting one another, encouraging one another, speaking into one another's lives. And so much the more as you see the day approaching, that is the day of his coming and the day of evil. Now he gets, um, he, he leaves his application for a minute. He's going to come back to application again in verse 32. But in verses 26 through 31, he's going to give a little bit of a parenthesis here and he's going to explain something in the context of these sacrifices. Notice what he says. He says, for if we sin willfully, now sin, of course, is disobedience. We understand what that is. Willfully means that I did it on purpose and I'm aware of it. Now, how many people in here, since the moment you've got saved, you have not sinned willfully? Is there anyone here that can raise their hand to that and say, well, I have not sinned willfully once since I've gotten saved? No one else? Just me? No, we sin, right? Psalm chapter 32. Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. Blessed is the man whose transgression is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not iniquity. All three words for sin are used in those two verses. Sin, which means to miss the mark. I tried, but I failed. Transgression, which means I did it on purpose. God drew a line in the sand, said, don't cross this line. I looked God in the face and walked over the line. That's transgression. And then iniquity is just the general condition of human uncleanness. That's what we are. We are iniquitous by nature. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now, you know. But he says, blessed is the man that all three of those, we all sin, we all transgress, not because we want to, but because we're weak, because we're human. So he says, if we sin willfully, which we all do, every one of us falls under this category, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, that is, after we came to Christ and are saved, He says, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sins. Now, when I first read that as a new believer, I went, oh no, I'm done. I'm toast. I'm lost. I'm going to hell forever. Because now what can be done? I've sinned willfully after I received the knowledge of the truth. There's absolutely no hope for me. Listen, good news for you. That's not what he's saying there. What he's saying to us is this. He's saying that if you sin willfully after you come to faith in Jesus Christ, there is no offering or sacrifice that you can bring to God that will atone for or put away your sin. That was what the Hebrew Christians were doing. They were reverting back to the Old Testament sacrifices. He says, but rather there's a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sorer or worse punishment suppose ye 
Shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite unto the Spirit of grace? Listen. If you turn your back on Jesus Christ because you think that there's another way that you can be saved other than through his cross, then you are doing despite unto the spirit of grace. That's who these verses are speaking to. Not the person who sins once they're saved and turns to God for forgiveness, but rather the person who sins after they were saved then turns their back on Christ and says, I'm going to pay for this myself. I'm going to offer something to God that will be the cleansing and the atoning for this sin. He says, you do not have security if that's the position of your life. Do you understand that that's the context of the entire book of Hebrews? It's the same warning that he has given over and over and over again. Don't turn away from Christ. That's where your security is. That's where your salvation is. That's where forgiveness is. There is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. And if we turn to anything else as our, as our plea or our righteousness before God, we are standing on nothing. For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongs unto me. I will recompense, says the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But, verse 32, contrast. In contrast to that, call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, the lights were on, you endured a great fight of afflictions. Think about the progress that you've already made as Christians. Think about the truth that God has already revealed to you, that, 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 that he's shown you in his word. Think about the battles that you've already fought against sin and temptation and the flesh and the world and overcome. Think about all that God has brought you through already. Bring those things into your remembrance. Partly, while you were made a gazing stock or a laughing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. For you had compassion on me in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. He's saying, listen, call to remembrance everything that God has already done in your life. And don't forget that everything that you've done for his name is going to be rewarded in heaven when you stand before him. That all of the persecution that you've endured... All of the giving that you've done, all of the works that you've performed in his name, all of those things are a rewardable work. Don't turn your back on him. Don't turn your back on the progress that he's made in your life. Don't turn your back on what's waiting for you in heaven. Verse 35, cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. And then he quotes um, from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He says, For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. Quoting from Habakkuk, that our salvation stands by faith. But if any man draw back, if you're going to turn away from faith in Christ, 
to any other thing as your means of salvation or even the means of your life, then the response of God is he says that my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Circle those words, no pleasure. It's the same words that are used back in verses 6 and verse 8 of this chapter when he said that God takes no pleasure in sacrifices or in offerings. That is of the Old Testament. That if we turn away from Christ and we seek to be saved by God by anything else, that God looks at that and he says, I'm not pleased. Think about it. You try to earn a right standing with God by the amount of scripture that you read on a daily basis. You say, God, I read for three hours today. Are you happy? You know what God says? Not pleased. God, I prayed for 18 consecutive days for at least 15 minutes. I've been keeping it up this time, just like I promised you. God, are you pleased? Not pleased. God, I haven't been bitter at my wife or my kids, or I haven't backsassed my boss or had a bad attitude or lied. God, I haven't. Are you pleased? Not pleased. But when we come to him and we say, God, in Jesus' name, my only plea is the cross and the blood that was shed by your son. And I deserve absolutely nothing from you. And apart from you, I am nothing. I bring nothing. I can do nothing. But I ask for your blessing upon my life today, not because of who I am, but because of who I am in you. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask for anything that I ask. And my righteous standing before you is in nothing else other than him. God says, I'm pleased. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That's our plea. That's our standing. And the closing word of the writer's argument in these ten chapters comes in verse 39. As he says, But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. The final point that he is making concerning the superiority of Jesus Christ over everything else that was in the Old Testament is that his salvation is a superior salvation because it's the only salvation. There is no salvation in any other. And what we have in him is a high priest and friend who brings us not only to a righteous standing before God, but brings us into the very presence of God himself. He moves us from darkness into light and he gives to us a life that he calls abundant. And you can't compare that with anything else. And to leave that or to ignore that and say, I don't need it or I don't want it, is to leave your life in a place of perdition and alienation from God. And it is utter foolishness. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, for inspiring the writer of Hebrews to write these things down. We're thankful for the amazing picture that it paints for us concerning our salvation. 
And we're thankful for the understanding that it gives to us concerning your son Jesus and of his heart and your love for us and sending him on our behalf. And tonight, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you would let us know you as our Father, that you would fill us with your holy love, that you would cause us to rejoice in Jesus Christ, and that we would stand in bold confidence before you. And in these days that we live in now, Lord, we would pray that we might serve your purposes in the world that we live in, that we would be able to provoke others unto love and good works through the work that you've performed and are performing in us. And that most of all, Lord, that you would remove from us all sin, all guilt, all stain. And that you would be the Lord of all in our lives. I pray for any that are here tonight that are tempted to draw back, whether it be into some religious thing or whether it be into some worldly thing. I pray that we would be brought near and that we would stand in full assurance of faith. So thank you, Father, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.